Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for Colorful Quantum Dots illustrates why curiosity is a powerful tool in science. Oh my God, this is really nice. Those colors are really beautiful. They gotta be useful for something. And seen the movie Dune? A scientist thinks that could be Earth's future. Minus the sandworms. What you see is a big supercontinent right in the middle of the world. Quite an arid, dry, desert region covering most of the land surface. Plus, how we'll pave the moon, how Neanderthals hunted lions, and how women led human evolution. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. Last week, the Nobel Prizes were awarded, and we spoke to the researchers who won the Medicine Prize for their work on the mRNA technology behind COVID vaccines. Well, this week we continue our Nobel coverage with the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. This year's prize is about the fundamental discovery in nanotechnology. You could say this year's Nobel Chemistry laureates used nanotech to create color. They discovered and created tiny nanoparticles called quantum dots that gave rise to an entirely new class of materials. The Nobel Prize in Chemistry for 2023 will be awarded to Alexei Yakimov and Lou Bruce for the discovery that it is possible to make such quantum dots and to Monji Bawendi for a synthesis method that made quantum dots widely useful. You can now find quantum dot technology all around us illuminating new color-rich computer and television screens, making colorful LED lights, and bringing astonishing new detail to medical imaging. Quantum magic is how Dr. Munji Bowindi has described what he's been working on for more than three decades. He's a professor of chemistry at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Hello, Dr. Bowindi, and congratulations on your Nobel Prize. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So what was your reaction when you got that early morning phone call from Sweden and found out that you won the Nobel Prize? It was uh, extreme surprise and shock, and I was sound asleep, and um, I wasn't quite sure if it was true, and, but, uh, you know, I woke up pretty quickly after that. <laughs> well, let's get down to the nanoscale level and uh, try to describe to me what a quantum dot actually is. So a quantum dot is a really tiny particle of semiconductor. It's so tiny that it only has a few thousand atoms as part of it. And to give you a sense of scale, a quantum dot compared to the size of a human, which is about a, a meter or so, a nano, the nanometer compared to a meter is about the same difference as a human compared to our sun. So the size difference is, is huge. Wow. Now, how does it actually work? The way that it works is that um, the electrons in the quantum dots, because they're so small, obey the laws of quantum mechanics as opposed to the laws of classical mechanics, which is what happens in your computer. And so those electrons 
they fill up the entire dot when you shine light on them instead of running around like little particles inside the dot. They just fill the whole thing up like a wave that would, you would have in a flute, for instance, uh, or in a, on, a, on a string. So the electron behaves like that wave. And uh, as you know, in a musical instrument, when you make the string smaller, the pitch of the sound gets, gets higher. The same thing happens with those electrons in that little box, that little particle that, that we create. As we make the particles smaller, then the wave of the electron gets smaller and, and its pitch or the equivalent of the pitch in the case of, uh, of the particles is color. The colors get bluer. So sometimes we call these applications color downshifting because we get a color of one wavelength, in this case, a bluish color. For instance, in a TV screen or computer mo monitor, the light that would be used would be uh, blue light coming from an LED. And then that light gets absorbed by the quantum dots and they re-emit the energy that they absorbed from the blue light as a different color light that's redder. For instance, green or orange or red or deep red or whatever color you want, depending on the size and the material of the dot. Oh, I see. So the, the light that you're putting in is uh, exciting the electrons the way that uh, blowing into a flute excites the sound, the, the molecules in the flute to make a sound. Absolutely. So you blow in your flute and you create the sound and the sound you create depends on how many holes you plug up on your flute, right? The number of holes then changes the, the wavelength or the size of the cavity that's your flute. And the same thing happens with the dots. So you change the size of the cavity with the dots with the, by changing the size of the dot. So what did you find was the key to being able to manufacture these quantum dots that got you the Nobel Prize? So what we uh, developed was a way to make the particles that was relatively simple compared to what had been done before, where we take the chemicals that make up the quantum dots and inject them into a, a hot solution. And when you do that, these chemicals react with each other very quickly and begin to grow. And because the injection creates a burst of nucleation, we call that, kind of like when you have snowflakes falling from the sky. And so that's what we do here. You know, we inject, we create that nucleation, and then we grow. And the longer we grow, the bigger the particles. And because they all start at the same size, they pretty much end up at all the same size when we're done growing. Now, when did you become aware of the potential real-world applications for these quantum dots? So that happened a few years later. So our paper came out in 93. And then a few years later, the community, and we certainly had a, a role, my students had a role in this, uh, were able to encapsulate these quantum dots with a hard shell. And it's that hard shell that allowed us to isolate those electrons in the quantum dot to prevent them from really seeing their environment. And then the light that was being emitted became much brighter. So with these very bright quantum dots now, really brightly fluorescent, then suddenly you realize, you know, oh my God, this is really nice. Those colors are really beautiful. They gotta be useful for something. <laughs> and the first application, and this is right around the same time that these solid state gallium nitride light emitting diodes had been invented. And the first thing we did was we, we encapsulated our quantum dots in a polymer and we stuck them on top of one of these blue 
emitting LEDs and immediately saw the downshifting process, which is what we expected. And so the initial idea was, okay, we're going to make different color LEDs this way. We're just going to take these blue LEDs that work incredibly well, and we're going to, you know, like making Christmas lights out of them. Wow. What other applications do you envision for this? I mean, we're seeing them already in uh, flat screen televisions and computer screens. Where else do you think it could go? Another direction that I'm very interested in is, is the light that is emitted from these particles can be made to be very special, what people call quantum light. And this kind of light could potentially be used for computing, in particular for quantum computing, or for doing special manipulation of communications using quantum mechanics as opposed to classical mechanics. We're just starting to understand this special light that could come out of these quantum dots. And I think, for me at least, that is a really exciting direction. When you were working on this technology, did you have any idea that it would eventually appear in people's living rooms? Absolutely not, no. <laughs> and this is the thing that I really want to stress, is that at the beginning of this field, we were interested in this because it was a brand new material. It was a size region that nobody had investigated before. This was before people talked about nanoscience and nanotechnology. We were just very curious how the properties evolved from the molecular properties where every atom has its place and you can pretty much predict pretty well how it's going to work to the bulk properties where now you have a gazillion atoms and the electrons are little particles moving around and the properties are completely different from the molecule. What happens when you're in between? How do the properties change from the molecule to the bulk? Those were the questions that we were asking. And we really had no idea where it was going to go. It was curiosity-based research. Well, Dr. Buendi, thank you so much for your time. And once again, congratulations on winning the Nobel Prize. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Dr. Munji Bowindi is a professor of chemistry at MIT and the winner of this year's Nobel Prize in Chemistry. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a sizzle. Which is to say, a climate so hot and dry that practically nothing living can survive. You might be surprised to learn that I'm not talking about our current fossil fuel-driven climate crisis. I'm talking about something longer term, and a bit more geological. It's what a new model of our planet, 250 million years in the future, predicts. Researchers at the University of Bristol have modeled what the future of Earth would look like, taking into account things like the brightness of our sun, levels of carbon dioxide, and, most critically, the movement of the Earth's crust. Scientists call this new model Pangaea Ultima. Alexander Farnsworth is a senior research associate at the University of Bristol and the lead author of this study. Dr. Farnsworth, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Well, thank you very much for having me. First of all, uh, tell me about planet Earth 250 million years from now. What will it look like? If I was an astronaut in space looking down, what would I see? What you see is a big supercontinent right in the middle of the world, you know, right in centered on the equator, mostly in the tropics. And, you know, instead of this beautiful 
green lush forest you might see from a very zoomed out perspective what you'd actually see is quite an arid dry desert regions covering most of the land surface here you say a supercontinent there'd only be one continent how large would it be Oh, very large. So, you know, we'd still be roughly the same sort of land area we have today. And it's just all the continents, Antarctica included, have all now traversed right into the tropics. So they're in this nice kind of big bowl situated on the equator with a massive ocean surrounding it on both uh, east, west, north and south of it. Now, we've had situations like that in the past. We had Pangaea and Gondwana land where all the continents were together. Would it be like that? Yeah, absolutely. Very many of the sort of the supercontinents that existed in the past have had this sort of central world locations like this Pangaea Ultima, kind of mostly in the tropics. Now, why did you choose this particular time frame of 250 million years from now as the model? A lot of my work and a lot of our colleagues' work looks at past plate tectonics and when supercontinents have existed in the past and the climate that existed back then. And uh, so, you know, we kind of think maybe upwards to about 10 or even 16 of these supercontinents has existed for the last 2.6 billion years on the Earth. Now, what we can do is understand all the sort of geophysics of how the different tectonic plates move relative to one another. And what we can now do is project forward in time. But in about 250 million years, that's when we expect the new one will have completely formed itself. So then once this supercontinent forms, uh, why will the climate conditions be so extreme? It's kind of what I like to call a triple whammy of effects. So most of the landmass is going to be in the tropics, where of course, where most of the solar energy hitting the earth interacts with and it heats up the most, you know. And even if we were just to run the climate model and just re- you know, re-jumble about the continents into a supercontinent, you'd already get land surface temperatures about three times on average as hot as they are today. Then on top of that, we have this sort of continentality effect. Now, of course, in Canada, that's a very stark process where if you're living in the middle of Canada, you tend to have very, very hot summers, but also very, very cold winters. And this seasonality effect uses the, the, the greater impact it has the further away you are from the oceans. So if you're living in the sort of central area of this big supercontinent, you're going to have much more higher extremes and temperatures. But because it's in the tropics, again, you're not going to have those really, really cold winter temperatures. So it's just going to be hot most of the year round. We then add on the sun. We know as you go into the future, the sun fusion that's occurring within the sun itself will start to increase. And this is a fairly you know, linear process that we quite well understood. And in about 250 million years, we expect there's going to be about two and a half percent more energy created by the sun. And that's also going to now interact with our Earth further warming up the world. And then thirdly, on top of that, then you also have this sort of these tectonic processes. As you form a supercontinent, you tend to get the tectonic plates, some subducting under one another. Of course, when you have a lot of this sort of subducting plates occurring, as we see in the Pacific Rim, especially today, there's lots of volcanism, lots of these volcanoes spewing large amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere. And again, we think it could be anywhere from, uh, you know, nearly up to double what we have in the atmosphere today. Again, more CO2 in the atmosphere, more temperatures are going to rise again. So it's this triple whammy impact that's really raising and creating this really inhospitable, very high temperature environment. Wow. So you're talking about totally natural processes here. You're not talking about the effect of us burning fossil fuels today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we took this as this is just trying to understand what the natural world and the natural habitat would be based on this, this sort of time period in the future. 
So how hot will it get? You know, if you're living right in the center of the supercontinent, you can experience on average, as let's say, you know, in the, in the summer, you could be experiencing upwards of 60 degrees Celsius. So that's, wow. you know, incredibly hot. Moving towards the coasts, it gets a little bit cooler once the ocean has a bit more of effect. But it has a bit of a double whammy, this one, because then you have much more evaporation from these oceans. So the nearer you are to the coast, the more humid it's going to be. Now, the more humid it is, the more difficult it can be to sweat. And again, if you can't sweat like most mammals do or pant and get that sort of core body temperatures down as you do that, then you're going to overheat, which over a long you know, time period will end into mortality. Now, we've had these supercontinents in the past, as you mentioned. How did life survive those? For the most part, many didn't. As we know, the great five mass extinctions in the past, four of those are exactly during big supercontinents. So we already know that these sort of supercontinents seem to sort of predispose the Earth environment and their system to be more fragile, let's say, um, the potential to have these sort of big mass extinctions and push the climate to a point where it might tip over and lead to a big mass extinction. So, you know, we have, again, looking at the sort of what called the Permo-Triassic boundary, but 252 million years ago during Pangaea. And that led to what we call the great dying. That's where 90% of all species just went extinct. So it's almost like a great reset of life and evolution towards a different trajectory. So again, you know, what this could be what we might be expecting in the future. Well, none of us will be around to see Pangaea Ultima. But uh, how can we use this forecast here in the present? What this was really showing is, you know, humans have evolved in a very cool point in Earth's climate. You know, if you look much further back in time, it's always been much, much hotter than it is today. And, you know, as we're projecting into the future, it's going to be much, much hotter as well. So, you know, this is what we really want to do is make sure we understand that, you know, we are very lucky. Let's keep our climate as it is. Let's try to reach net zero, reduce CO2, where we can better live in these sorts of environments instead of having to require lots and lots of money to try and change our climate to be more uh, suitable in the future when it keeps warming. Dr. Farnsworth, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. It's great talking to you. Dr. Alexander Farnsworth is a senior research associate in the School of Geographical Sciences at the University of Bristol. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That was U.S. President John F. Kennedy making a promise in 1962 to put an astronaut on the moon. Fast forward about 60 years, and NASA has plans to go back to the moon. But this time, they want to stay a bit longer. We go to the moon now, not as a series of isolated missions, but to build a community on and around the moon capable of proving how to live on other worlds. NASA's ambitious plan includes a permanent base on the moon, complete with rovers to explore the lunar surface. But getting to that point is a huge technical challenge, partly because it's so costly to take stuff to the moon. So it's likely that much of the lunar infrastructure will have to be manufactured from lunar resources. And researchers are still figuring out how to do that. Well, they may now have taken one small step forward. 
with a new technique that uses lasers to transform moon dust into a solid brick-like material that will literally pave the way for our exploration of the moon. Dr. Miranda Fateri is one of the researchers on the project. She's a professor of mechanical engineering and material science at Ehlen University in Germany. Hello, Dr. Fateri. Welcome to our program. Hi, Bob. Thank you for having me. First of all, why do we need to pave the moon? Well, lunar surface is covered um, by small particles in the range of one millimeter and smaller, and it sticks almost to everywhere. It's highly electrostatically charged, it is magnetic, and it's abrasive. It's a danger for astronauts. Astronaut suits, suits could be damaged. And also the rovers and the infrastructure on the moon could be damaged due to the dust. Well, how much of a, a sense did we get of uh, just how dangerous the lunar dust is from the Apollo missions that went to the moon in the 60s? Well, it has been recorded that some part of astronauts were damaged during the Apollo missions. And as astronauts were backed into their spacecraft, they could smell the lunar dust. So it means that they brought part of it into the spacecraft. And this could be also dangerous for the astronauts' lungs. Yes, I, I interviewed Harrison Schmidt, who was on the last mission to the moon, and he said it, the dust just got everywhere and they couldn't get it off. They were black. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and that's all they said, that it smells like, like gunshot. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you manage to turn lunar dust into brick or pavement? Well, uh, there are different techniques which we can use to form the lunar dust and shape it. You can use binders. You can use um, microwave heat. Uh, conventional oven heat, laser heat, solar heat. And what we did in this study is we used a um, relatively huge uh, laser focus spot, a spot of 10 centimeter. The laser that we used it was also a relatively high power, like about uh, 12 kilowatts. And using this high power, which we radiated on a relatively high focus diameter, we could uh, achieve melting a relatively thick layer at once, at one laser path. We could melt two and a half centimeters, approximately three centimeters. We melt at once laser path, which had not been achieved before. Wow. So you just literally melted with the laser. Were, were you doing this on real moon dust? No, it was artificial moon sand. It's, uh, it was a lunar regular simulant developed at European Astronaut Center in Cologne, Germany. Ah. So once you've melted the dust into this uh, hard material, how strong is it? Uh, well, the part that we produced underwent the mechanical test, compression test, and they showed the relatively similar results to concrete that we use on Earth. Boy, now normal concrete usually has a number of different ingredients that have to be mixed together. How were you able to make the, uh, the lunar dust form a concrete-like material by just shining the laser on it? Well, when we heat up the lunar regolith, the particles start to bond together. It's a phase we call sintering, and after some time, the particles will start flowing and will be completely melted. If we cool it down fast enough, the atoms don't have enough time to find their positions, so they will be frozen in random positions. And that's called glass, basically. Boy, so what's it look like? <laughs> it looks like a black mirror. <laughs> a black mirror? <laughs> it's a, it's a, a shiny, black, glassy object. <laughs> 
Well, how did you get it to be, you know, as strong as concrete, but uh, if it's if it's like glass, it's it's not brittle. When we expose this glassy object to compression forces, it can act as a concrete, but you cannot expose it to tensile forces. It's brittle and it will crack. So then if you want to make it useful to have vehicles driving on it, what do you need to do? Well, vehicles usually, you know, press the surface, so paved roads will be exposed to to the compression forces. Now, if you're going to make this on the moon, will you be uh, just sort of passing a laser over the dust and leaving this glassy road behind as it goes? How will it work? What we are aiming at is calculating how we can replace this with solar light, which is abundant on the moon. We don't have weathering conditions and it's high vacuum on the moon. So we can basically replace the laser heat with solar light and replace these scanners that we use in our system with fernal lenses and focus it on the lunar dust. So you just hold a lens over it. It's sort of like holding a magnifying glass over a piece of paper and it focuses the sunlight and burns it. It's just a little bit bigger. <laughs> a little bigger. <laughs> Now, do you get one continuous sheet of this pavement, or, or what does it look like when it's done? Well, um, we try to melt one single track, and uh, then we tried two tracks with an overlap, and we understood that as soon as the first track will be reheated by the second track, the first track starts to crack because it's a glassy object, right? So during the study, we were able to develop interlocking elements with no overlap structures for paving roads on the moon. Oh, I see. What shapes are your interlocking bricks? Uh, well, they look like triangles with round edges. So they're, they're kind of like the uh, interlocking bricks that people put in their driveways. That's true. So what else could you do with this technology besides just make pavement on the moon? Well, um, if we want to go back to the moon, we need to land on the lunar surface again. And landing on a loose soil is not a safe landing place. By uh, Apollo missions, we also saw that some some spacecrafts almost uh, collapsed. (laughs) And uh, we are also trying to make use of such uh, interlocking elements for landing packs. Okay, so we got landing pads. Uh, what about uh, building materials? Yes, we can also build habitats using interlocking elements. That would be also possible. <laughs> so, how exciting is it for you to be working on uh, what could become, you know, the future of lunar colonies? That's super exciting. It's my passion. <laughs> Dr. Fateri, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Bob. Dr. Miranda Fateri is a professor of mechanical engineering and material science at Aalen University in Germany. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bob McDonald, and this is Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. 
Coming up later in the program, Evolution's Eves, exploring how humans came to be from the woman's perspective. Okay, the female body is radically understudied in biological research. The females are weirdly left out from our evolutionary story. Let's see what there is to learn here. The picture of Neanderthal life and Neanderthals themselves has changed in recent years. We've learned our cousins were much smarter, more adaptable, more artistic, and creative than they were previously given credit for. Much more human, in other words. And an intriguing new discovery made while studying the fossil of an enormous, fearsome, and now extinct European cave lion has shown they were also skilled and courageous hunters. Mr. Gabriel Russo, a Ph.D. candidate in zoo archaeology at the University of Tübingen in Germany, was part of the team. Mr. Russo, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Hi. Hello. First of all, tell me about the skeleton that you studied. Where was it found? So uh, the skeleton was found in 1985 in near a small town in southern Bavaria in southern Germany uh, called Siegsdorf, which is at the feet of the Alps. The place was an open-air place, and the skeleton was found by chance, actually. In 1985? Uh, how, how complete is it? Uh, it's uh, almost complete, yes. Basically, there are only the upper limbs missing. And how old is it? The skeleton was uh, dated previously, and it was dated to about 48,000 years ago. Wow. Now, what evidence did you find that it was uh, the lion was killed by a weapon? So, while uh, reanalyzing the skeleton, I found on the inner side of a rib a partial puncture. So, we ran some first uh, metric analysis on it and compared them to damages caused by carnivores. And we saw that it was too big to be uh, created by a carnivore. And also, the shape was a bit weird. So, then we compared to a data, a data set of known. Uh, lesions of projectile weapons, meaning spears, and it fit perfectly in the center of the plot. Well, well, tell me about this mark in the bone. What did it look like? The mark is round or oval-shaped, and there are cracks around uh, that are very indicative of the fact that it happened perimortem, so when the animal just died. And we also made a CT scan of the rib so we could see how the wound was looking from the inside. And the, the wound channel was conical. So it was basically the negative of the tip of the spear. So we actually have the shape of the tip inside the bone. So would this wound have been enough to kill the animal? Yes, uh, because basically when we did the ballistic reconstruction, we figured out that the lion was lying on its side on the ground already and the spear penetrated from uh, the abdomen through the thoracic cage and hit this rib from the inside. So the weapon passed through most of the vital organs, killing the lion basically immediately. Wow. So the lion was lying on its side. So what does that tell you about how the Neanderthals hunted? Yeah, so that's an interesting question because we have two main hypotheses about how the hunt happened, actually. On the skeletons, we also identified other potential hunting lesions that could have been created when the lion was actually hidden by other projectiles, 
like javelins, for example. So free spears that were thrown at it. So it would have been pursued. And Neanderthals had thrown javelins at it, hit it. And then when it would have been exhausted on the ground, they would have given coup de grace to kill him. The other uh, alternative, which is still very likely, is that the lion was sleeping. And modern lion sleeps 20 hours per day. And it's totally possible that Neanderthals just managed to get close enough to spear him before he would awake. (laughs) Now, how do you know that the weapon that killed the the lion was from a Neanderthal? Uh, So we know that because... 48,000 years ago in that area, there are no traces of other hominins present. So the kill can only be attributed to Neanderthals. Now, the animal, this uh, cave lion, uh, how much bigger was it than the lions that we know in Africa today? Cave lions were about 20% bigger of modern African lions. In the case of the Lion of Sixtof, we have pretty good estimation because the skeleton was mostly complete. We know that it was about 1.2 meter height at the shoulder, and it was a male lion of average size for a cave lion, which means that it was basically comparable to a very large male African lion. <laughs> well, male African lions today are pretty dangerous. Why would Neanderthals go after such a, a dangerous animal? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very good question. <laughs> uh, so we have thought of different hypotheses about it. So the lion was an old lion, and we know that because the teeth were worn. So they were still sharp, razor sharp, but we could estimate the age by that. And what we know from modern African lions in the, is that when they became too old, they get kicked off from the pride by youngsters. So they lose their territory, they lose their pride, and they become lone rogue lions. And I think the Sigsdorf lion was a rogue lion. And rogue lions are very dangerous for people because usually are desperate for food and they would tend to attack people during their sleep. So here the hypothesis would be that either Neanderthal hunted a self-defense mechanism. Uh, So they kill it before it could kill any Neanderthal or as a retaliation, for example. Or it is also possible that the hunt was opportunistic because the lion was old and maybe less able to escape or run away. And the Neanderthals just saw an opportunity for a nice meat package that was lying there. (laughs) (laughs) We keep learning more and more about the Neanderthals, how sophisticated they were. How does this picture of the fact that they hunted big lions fit into that? Well, from my point of view, I think this is pretty important and new evidence because we keep saying like, yeah, lions are amazing and they're beautiful. And, you know, I really don't know why this would have not been the same for Neanderthals. They were living with them. They were sharing the same landscape, the same praise. Lions were uh, social animals, large predators. And Neanderthal knew that they were probably having a special relationship with them. Like, I don't know, maybe spiritual or symbolic, or they were seeing the lions in a special way. Mr. Russo, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome.
Thank you. Mr. Gabriel Russo is a PhD candidate in zoo archaeology at the University of Tübingen in Germany. Here's a provocative thought. From one evolutionary perspective, women can be thought of as more important than men. After all, what's the point of evolution? Well, to make babies and have those babies carry your genes into the future. And certainly men are essential to starting those babies when they provide their genetic contribution. And of course, they can be quite helpful in raising them. But once the sperm has been supplied, they aren't as absolutely and fundamentally essential for the next several years as the mother is. She gestates the baby, births it, and in many cases feeds the helpless infant from her own body. That's part of the reason Seattle-based writer and researcher Kat Bohannon decided to write a book that looks at human evolution from the perspective of women's bodies— because she's got evidence to argue that the particular adaptations of women's bodies are what have enabled, and in some cases led, human evolution. The book is called Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Dr. Bohannon, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Oh, thank you, thank you. Nice to be here. So what first inspired you to tell the story of human evolution from the perspective of the female body? Well, I certainly have a female body, and it sort of, so it comes to mind. But it's also true that I'm a big Kubrick fan. And uh, when I was a preteen, I was watching an old copy of 2001 from by Stanley Kubrick. And there's this classic scene that's actually called in the screenplay, The Dawn of Man, you know, capital M. And you've got all of these hominins in the scene, and uh, I can't spot any females. Maybe they're supposed to be, but there's no babies, so it's a little suspicious. Anyway, you know, and they're, they're hammering uh, around some bones, and they invent the first weapon, and Kubrick follows it up into the sky, and it turns into a spaceship, and this is this is the idea of, of human evolution. We arrive in space from these ancient... And the funny thing is, it's like, where are the females in this actually primate species? Are they just like behind a hill? Like, pardon me, I see you're doing something really important with a rock. I'm just going to build the future of our species in my womb and pound a tuber or something, right? You know, and I remember thinking like, there's something not quite here. And, you know, you fast forward through my life and there are other key moments where I'm like, okay, the female body is radically understudied in biological research. The females are weirdly left out from our evolutionary story. Let's see what there is to learn here because there's a lot of cutting edge science that's, that's worth paying attention to that changes the story a bit. You structure your book around the evolution of uh, certain capacities, and humans take a while to enter this story. Your first character is an, an animal named Morgie. Uh, tell me about her. Oh, we love Morgie, that furry little beast. She's kind of like a weasel rat. She lived about 200 to 205, roughly, million years ago. And I actually share her full, the full name of the genus is uh, Morganicodon. There are many species. And she is why we have milk, actually. This is sort of thought of as the dawn of when we start lactating, which is one of the most important divergent points where we really started to become what we now call mammals. Back then it's mammalia forms, but now we would call it mammals. That's a moment we're set on that path. So this is the moment where we start making milk. Why is milk so crucial? 
Well, milk is crucial for a number of reasons. Milk is crucial uh, primarily because it controls where a newborn offspring is getting its water, actually, because milk is mostly water. And water is a hotbed of pathogens when you get it from your local stream or fetid pool. The most curious thing is that milk is lastly food. So it's actually first that the baby is thirsty and maybe also hungry. But what milk is doing, especially in early, early development, is shaping the microbiome of that baby's intestines, not only to make it ready to digest something like milk, but also because all of that microbiome down the digestive tract is strongly training the immune system, right, in those critical early phases of life. So for example, there are huge portions of milk sugars that we don't digest like at all. It's literally only for the bacteria that we are cultivating in a weird garden in our guts, right? And what that helps do is select for mm, friendlier profiles, let's say, of our gut bugs, uh, things that might be more helpful to the baby uh, rather than harmful. There are complex ways you, that happens, and you'll see in the book um, that we have a deep, deep relationship to these little bugs. But um for the most part, for the most part, it's milk is what kicks that journey off. And as you point out in your book, milk preceded the breast and the nipple, but the nipple itself is interesting as an example of the female body driving evolution and, well, men just coming along for the ride, as it were. Right. So my father's nipples, I haven't seen them very often, but I know he has them. Now, my father's nipples, I don't think of as exactly vestigial necessarily. In that, you know, uh, there are actually some human communities that let babies, you know, sort of suckle mostly as a pacifier on uh, male chess. Now, my husband did not do this with my children, but you know, more power to the people who do cultures are different diversity is good moving on. Right. But the interesting thing about the male nipple is that basically, we're hardwired to make milk right? We're just deeply, deeply, deeply so. In fact, um, I met a lactation consultant for trans women. She was amazing. And I live in Seattle. So, you know, these people are around. And she sent me down this beautiful rabbit hole of research. And essentially, the uh, hormone protocol that trans women will take in order to potentially lactate uh, if she has adopted a baby or has gone through IVF with a surrogate and wants to provide milk to the child, usually for medical reasons, but sometimes also just like cis women for the experience. I don't know. People are into different stuff is uh, the same. It's the same fistful of pills, essentially, that a uh, cis woman will take because lots of women adopt babies, but then think, oh, maybe breastfeeding is a thing I want, or maybe breastfeeding is a thing that could be healthy for my newborn who wouldn't have it otherwise. Maybe I could try. And it's the exact same fistful of pills. So it's like, in other words, the human chest wall, no matter if it has these fatty bits, no matter which kind of puberty it goes through, is so hardwired to respond to certain hormonal signals that it's just like, I don't know, it's like the Paul Revere, just like, oh, crap, a baby's <laughs> incoming, you know, ring the bells, you know, send down the milk, we better start building some memory tissue. Mm -hmm. And it works, it works in either. So is that vestigial? Or is it just like, well, it's so important that it's just it's it's just there. Now, the next big adaptation that you write about is the womb and its connection to the dinosaurs. Tell me about that. Well, um, the big 
connection that the womb, the uh, modern placental womb uh, uterus has to the dinosaurs is that they mostly went extinct except for like some disgruntled birds. And um, it also knocked out a huge number of the ancestors of marsupials because actually we were head and head, uh, we mammals for a marsupial or a placental plan. And for whatever reason, the marsupials uh, died out more, if you like. This is why they're mostly now in South America and Australia, except for the possum in your yards. But it's also true that for the placenta, what really, really changed in the female line is that now we were effectively hatching our eggs inside of our own bodies now. Mm -hmm. So that meant that like we had to build a uterus, a womb that could kind of turn the mother's body into some combination of burrow or nest and eggshell for like this huge amount of time, right? And that has knock-on effects in female immune systems, obviously. It has Mm knock-on effects in our metabolism, in our cardiovascular system, um, which may be part of why so many human men uh, have known problems with their cardiovascular system. Ours are slightly more um, dynamic. We have we have more flexible peripheral vasculature, and it might be tied indeed to how these wombs evolved. You write about the mother-child conflict that the womb sets up. Explain that. <laughs> so... Yeah, I love my babies. I love my babies. It is also Mm -hmm. true that by the nature of things, when they were growing in me, they were trying to kill me. Not on purpose, (laughs) you know, but like effectively, right? Because if you think about the womb as an environment, a kind of micro environment, right, inside of this body, you effectively have two competing interests the maternal body and the uh, growing fetus. Now, the fetus, of course, long evolves to get as many resources as it can. It takes a hell of a lot to build a body, right? So you need Mm -hmm. not just, you know, uh, metabolic stuff, you need actual building blocks to build out this body plan. Meanwhile, you have a maternal body that has long evolved to survive, right? So there's always going to be this intense tension in the placental body when it's going through uh, pregnancy, right? Where essentially the mother's body and the infant's body are in conflict for resources. So it's not exactly a warm, fuzzy story. It's more of a trench warfare, but it works. It works. And if it works, then, well, evolution mostly requires that it works. (laughs) It works and eventually the child leaves. It does work. And there's a beautiful scientific paper, actually, that came out some years ago showing that it isn't when the baby gets uh, to a certain size that determines when we give birth, when we go into labor at the end of a normal pregnancy. It's actually a metabolic threshold. It's actually the moment at which how much the baby is literally sucking out of the mother uh, in the womb is uh, going to pass a tipping point and start to really, really negatively impact her. Um, so so we give birth at the moment at which you need to leave now. <laughs> well, let's skip ahead a few tens of millions of years. Uh, it was a big evolutionary step when our ancestors rose up on two legs. So mm-hmm. how do we understand bipedalism from a female body perspective? Yeah. So the vast majority of human beings have legs and uh, and the vast majority of us fall into uh, one or the other sex. And you wonder, okay, so what's the deal with walking upright? Now, a lot of times it's been this very, very um, 
I don't know what to call it, kind of stereotypical male story, like, oh, you know, the guys needed to go hunting to get the meat to bring it home to the, you know, the females with these vulnerable babies. And this is uh, extremely unlikely for a number of reasons. The first and most obvious reason is that we weren't actually regularly hunting big game for a way, way long time after we became upright with Artipithecus, okay? Um, the, the likelier case that you can see, or at least I thought likelier, talking to some primatologists, is what you can see in some extant non-human primates, your chimps, your chimps and bonobos. When are they walking on two legs, okay? They're doing it in many cases to carry rare food away from other guys that might steal it. Um, and what's interesting about this moment that we became bipedal is there was a kind of big climate shift where um, our riverine forests started to include longer stretches of getting to food potentially, right? But the thing that we forget about male versus female is that, well, in almost every other primate species, but certainly the, the apes, the females are the primary caretakers of their offspring for years and years and years. And that means they're the ones responsible for making sure the kid gets enough food, right? In many ways, even though we're super social primates, the model of the history of, you know, the female line in apes is basically single moms, you know, just going out and working really, really hard to try and source food for the kids, right? So if you need to go and get food and the kids with you, it seems likely that you would you would need to move a little further away from the group. And what it really takes to walk upright is to have a body that's geared towards endurance. And you point out that women have extraordinary endurance. Yeah, actually, that's one of the big uh, sexual uh, differentiations. The big sex difference between male and female musculoskeletal systems isn't just that extra muscle mass that uh, typical adult men have. It's also all the way down to how much uh, slow twitch versus fast twitch fibers we have in our skeletal muscles. Um, it also has to do with what those cells are doing to use different substrates. What kind of energy are they using? When do they kick into a second wind? And just by almost every measure, a typical female body, even if it's not trained that way, just sort of innately seems to be more good for, at endurance which makes sense now that we know that, you know, ultra endurance marathoners are very often women, right? That there's something about the female body that is geared towards endurance. Now, earlier on, you mentioned uh, how you were influenced by the famous scene in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey when uh, our ancestors found out that bones could be weapons. Uh, mm -hmm. How does a primordial Eve story of tool use differ from that? Tool use is actually not the study of rocks. It's the study of behavior. What you care about is who was this creature that was making this tool and using it? And what were that? What were, what were those environmental challenges around then? Which is to say tool use is really all about what are your biggest problems in terms of your body limitations? Well, from my perspective, there were two things that jumped out. One, uh, some of the primary tool users among chimpanzees are, are female actually, um, particularly when it comes to hunting weapons. Um, like right now, somewhere in Africa, a female chimp is using a spear that she's made with her hands and her teeth gnawing down a branch and using it to stab bush babies, which are very adorable little primates, but food now too. And she's using those spears more than the guys are. And her offspring are learning how to do it primarily from her. So there's one idea of like, who are the inventors of tools? 
The other reason is that I think our major problem, like our deepest, deepest problem uh, along our hominin line was that we're not actually great at making babies. We actually have a lot of reproductive hamstrings, right? We have our pregnancies and births and postpartum recoveries are longer and more prone to dangerous complications and um, generally just bad than they are compared to other, most other primates, most other mammals actually. And this is why you say gynecology is one of early humanity's most important inventions for our evolution? Absolutely. And I'm not the first to say that Lucy had a midwife, Lucy the Australopithecine. <laughs> you can go see her in the Natural History Museum. There she is. And she totally had a midwife because she had a similar problem that we do, the obstetric dilemma. We have very big babies and a very small birth canal. Um, there are a few different theories for why this is, but the major outcome is that you have a watermelon trying to go through a lemon-sized hole. Um, and, <laughs> and well, creatures that have that you often need help. You make the case in your book that our long human lives are also a function of the pressure primarily on women's evolution. Why is that? Mm, I would actually, I'll revise that a little bit for you. I would say that... Um, the human species selected for longevity. And it just so happens to be that whatever mechanisms are driving that longevity, and I mean longevity as in our lifespan compared to a chimp, okay? And also our patterns of aging. They Chimps age a lot faster than we do. Like a 60-year-old chimp is just a lot older by many measures uh, than a 60-year-old human being, as long as we have good medicine, right? Um, so that means that somewhere along our line, we evolved ways of helping our bodies resist senescence, resist aging, and living longer effectively. But many of them seem to work better in the biologically female body. And when you take a step back and you look at our evolutionary path, well, we know in that we know that in current species of other mammals, it's also true that you get that female resilience. You get a longer female lifespan. Maybe there's just something about being a female mammal that's better at not dying. Right. And if you extend those mechanisms and let's assume there are a lot of them, complex bodies are complex and so are ours. Right. If some of those mechanisms are just then massively, you know, selected for and extended in the human body plan and females are already better at it. Well, then that is very likely why human women now live longer than human men in nearly every population we've ever looked at. And I honestly think the future of gerontology research is gonna take these sex differences more seriously because if we can actually unlock some of these underlying mechanisms that drive some of that vulnerability, then that means we're going to be able to help all people live longer, healthier lives. Well, your book was a wonderfully refreshing look at evolution and the nature of humanity. Thank you so much for that. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Kat Bohannon is a Seattle-based writer and researcher and the author of Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link at our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. 
Sporks and Quarks was produced by Leslie Amundsen, Olsi Sorokina, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Lemons. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.